0: Starting in verse 36b, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me thank the Lord this morning for his word. Well, again, your sermon outline is available to you in that little handout that we gave this morning, if that's a help to you. Our title, this is the third part in our little mini-series in John 12 on True Triumph. We opened this up in the beginning with Jesus coming in in verse 12 of chapter 12, riding on a donkey, and we discussed the humility of Christ. Um, The week after that, we talked about the suffering and the sacrifice that Christ had come to accomplish, to take on our behalf. And then today we move to his obedience, a central aspect of his character. So in these three aspects of the true triumph of Christ, I hope that you would see the humility of his character, the mission of suffering and sacrifice, and then lastly, his obedience being the true desire of the Savior. You know, Jesus died on the cross for you. He did that so that you could be forgiven. His love is immeasurable. His grace towards you is more than you could possibly imagine. If you think you need mercy, you don't know how how much mercy you really need. And you don't know how great the mercy of Christ truly is at the cross, and neither do I. We just know that it is, right? But his desire before the creation of the world is bound up in this matter of his obedience to his Father to glorify him. Did you notice that word glory keeps showing up in the Gospel of John? And it showed up with Isaiah. Isaiah said these things because that is the motive or the purpose or the reason that he said what he said was because because he saw the glory of Christ. And so Christ does the same thing because he knows perfectly the glory of his Father. He seeks to walk in obedience to him in all of his life, and he has. You know, I was thinking about um, the crazy world of jobs that's going on right now. And I read uh, just the other day, 40 million people left their jobs last year in 2021. 40 million. That's quite a bit of people leaving their jobs. And this, this big mass exodus from jobs has been labeled in different ways. It's been labeled the great resignation, the great renegotiation, The great reshuffle and the great rethink. All of those things beginning with that prefix re, which means to do it again, right? Resignation to pull away from, renegotiation to talk through the terms of the job that I have right now. Reshuffling, maybe moving positions around, and then lastly, rethinking. And it seems that many people have even started thinking, maybe I don't want to work at all it was fascinating that as this is going on in our culture and we're observing a very unique time in our American history, these four words stuck out to me as perhaps something of the four steps of Christian obedience as well. The great resignation, that first look at who Christ is that leads us to think, I could never. Are you kidding me? Do you know how bad I am? Do you know how much I fail in this area? It's very tempting for us, particularly at the beginning of our walk, to think, I don't know that I could ever measure up to what Christ has actually done for me. How can I be so obedient and triumph in that obedience when I know that I fail so well? If renegotiation is a word in the matter of our obedience, it might mean that we might look at God's word and say, you know, I think that when Jesus says things like, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, that was purely symbolic And it is, right? He doesn't actually tell us literally to do that. But in its symbolism, I'm finding that maybe it's really not as heavy as what it initially sounded like. I'm going to renegotiate the way that I interpret Scripture. I'm going to re-understand it. Maybe the reshuffle in the matter of obedience is to say, you know... I'm not really going to be that obedient Christian. That's not the position that God's created me for. He's created me as, I even see in the book of Romans, I'm a vessel of mercy. So why not sin so that grace could abound all the more? Maybe I could have that position in the church. I mean, oh my goodness, can you imagine if that was an official office, office, the vessel of mercy, the person that just sins constantly so that grace can abound? We would never need to fill that position, would we? (laughs) There would, there would be a line, and I would be in it. I <laughs> know. <laughs> it just seems so easy. We would like to reshuffle some of these things and then rethink it. This, this word rethink kind of hits another word that's struck the church in, in recent years, too, of this idea of deconstructing. Have you heard that? Are you scared of this word? If you are, don't be, because deconstructing doesn't necessarily have to be bad. Unfortunately, what's happening is we're taking this idea of deconstructing our faith, which should just mean that I'm taking the pieces apart, examining and considering what's true and what doesn't really belong there, which if we all did that, I think we'd find some good things to keep and some good things to get rid of. But that deconstruction is so often just lumped into the definition of deconversion, That is to say that now, since I've deconstructed, I can't put this back together and keep on my walk with Christ. Rather, I'm going to just try something else entirely. I'm going to rethink my Christian walk and maybe end up walking a different direction. You know, what I've found with so many of my friends who have begun the Christian race and have not finished it is that it was never just a one-day thought of, you know what, I'm not going to obey today. I'm going to let today be different. I'm going to just be me. I'm going to do me. And, and whatever I think, I'm going to let that stand. And whatever my decisions are, I'm going to just walk in that. And, and that might sound preposterous to us, but we're not too far off from that thought process sometimes, are we? But it's never just one day. It's a slow decay of the desire for the glory of God into the glo- desire for glory of self that reveals the desire for glory of God has never truly been there. Our call this morning from this text, as you'll see in your outline, in your bulletin, is that we would find true triumph in Christ through obedience to his gospel. And I want to ask you, have you ever thought about obeying the gospel before? This is a a phrase used in scripture, obeying the gospel. Well, the gospel, we're talking about good news, right? Good news that we're called to believe. And one of the things I want to kind of smush together, you know, as, as opposed to smushing deconstruction and deconversion together, I do want to take two words and kind of make them twins in your mind if I can. And take the word belief and obedience and bring them closer in your heart and your mind today, if you will, perhaps than you have before. Perhaps I know that in my mind I've set them apart. I've said that my belief is this matter and my obedience is another. But in truth, what Christ shows us is that we cannot... Truly believe the gospel without also obeying the gospel. The good news of Jesus is uh, what we even see in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, perhaps one of the best places Jesus begins his ministry and he goes out and he cries out, as we saw in this passage. He speaks to a large group of people and says, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There's a command there. The the matter of obedience is at the heart of the gospel, though, and this is where it's going to get tricky. We're not going to be a part of Christ because of our own obedience or because of our own works or righteousness. Okay? Think back to John chapter 3. Jesus starts speaking to Nicodemus and tells him about the new birth. You must be born what? Again. You must be born again. And the emphasis in that was it's not anything you can do. Later on he says, look, unless the Father draws anyone to me they can't come to me so your starting point is not a matter of obey the gospel but regeneration that work of being born again happens prior to the obedience of the gospel and when i say prior to i don't mean that you get regenerated and then a few weeks later you go oh i'm gonna start walking in obedience because that leads to another terrible modern day heresy And we mentioned it before, that we can make Jesus our Savior today so we can go to heaven, and then sometime down the road we might say, you know what, I think he actually wants me to do something and my life isn't really my own. You need to realize that at the point of conversion, for that conversion to be true, right? I know there's going to be a lot of soteriology, that doctrine of salvation in here, but it's very important, especially as we come to the point of the Gospel of John that we are in. Um, This is the end of Jesus's public ministry. It keeps wrapping and wrapping and wrapping. And we're going to get to a point where he's no longer going to talk to the crowds, but simply to his disciples. And you might think, I know what he says. I know he talks about foot washing. I know he talks about loving each other. There's a lot of simplistic things. But what we're looking at today is the easier stuff than what he says specifically to his disciples. Because obedience is so central yeah, we're going to see in the coming weeks that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and he said, as I've done to you, so you should do for each other. And some Christians take it literally, and that's not the worst thing, except washing feet kind of sounds stinky. But the idea is to say, can we humbly obey the command of our Savior and even sacrifice something of our own self for our brothers and sisters in Christ? That is the deeper thing. That is why Jesus says, no more crowds, just the disciples. In fact, just the 12. And we're going to huddle in here, and I'm going to tell you some deep things about what life in Christ really is and about what I'm about to do. So that's coming forward. So if this sounds heavy, you have a lot of Bible study to do this week. I know I do. (laughs) What we see in this passage is the clear example of Christ's obedience and the clear problem of our disobedience. We must obey the gospel. Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 are quoted here by John in this first section, verse 36b through 43, where he kind of explains what's been going on with these non-believers for this entire book. And he uses a very difficult passage. This is the condition of the unbelieving heart that hears the word but doesn't receive it. What is that like? It's like seeing but not perceiving. Verse 40 says that God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes. How are we supposed to understand that? Well, he's talking about people who have earlier, verse 38, John quotes Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This has been going on, but people haven't been receiving it. And so, in God's divine, sovereign plan and wisdom, He takes a startling action. We'll look at that a little bit later. But right now at the front of this, I want you to be thinking first about the command of the gospel message, the content of the gospel message, and the consequence of the gospel message. First, the command. We see this in verses 46 and 47. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. But then he goes on later on to say judgment will come, and it will come by on the basis of whether you've received the word. So notice already, I'm try- what I said earlier is I'm trying to do what Jesus has done, which is taking this idea of believing and keeping or obeying and making them into very close siblings here in our minds. We cannot truly believe without obeying. We cannot truly receive and believe the words of christ if we do not keep them if we do not treasure them why do you think i go through that perhaps annoying spiel every sunday morning this is the most important thing we're going to do because i want you to keep the word of god i want that to be valued in your hearts even if you roll your eyes a little bit in your mind you go the most important thing you're going to do that's okay do you value do you keep the word of god in your hearts do you Protect that message of the gospel, the command of it, to preserve it, to obey it. And then the content of the gospel message we see as well. The loving commandment of eternal life. Go to the end of the passage uh, in verse 50. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Isn't it fascinating? Eternal life, something everyone on the face of the planet, if they were asked, would say, yes, I want that. Why? Don't want to die. Cultures, since the beginning of time have been looking for a way to eternal life. And when we come to the idea of commanding from God to his people and the matter of obedience to God's word, it is one of the easiest things that just turns people off. I don't want to worship a God that I have to obey. I'm an American. I can worship myself very freely and easily, right? That's not what Americans should be, but unfortunately it's a bad side effect of our freedom that we enjoy. But the content of the gospel message is a commandment of believing on Christ for eternal life. It is where God takes, again, to smush two words together, commandment and blessing, and marries them perfectly. What is he commanding you to do? To live! And Jesus has already said you can't do that on your own. That's the content of the message. There's not an array of options to choose from. The true triumph of Christ is not an option to fill in the blank of your political triumph or your social triumph or your economical or relational triumph. It is a triumph over our sin and a call to follow and obey him. The command of the gospel, the content of the gospel message, and the consequence of the gospel message. There's three groups that are messaged, mentioned in this passage and that we see throughout the whole gospel of John and all the gospels, as a matter of fact. First of all, there's true disciples who have obedient faith. That is, that they believe and they obey. They believe, receive, and keep, and all those kinds of things. True disciples. Then there's anti-disciples. They reject the faith. They reject the command to believe. There was once a really great sermon if you've never heard a sermon from Paul Washer it's a great use of your time this afternoon Um, but one of his sermons he talked about creation and how uh, you remember in the beginning the way God created everything was with his voice let there be light let there be sea let there be fish let there be birds let there be sky And what happens every time you know you read this you're like yeah I know I've been to Sunday school he said it it was he said it it was But Washer brings up the fact that God in his creative power is able to speak light into being. But when he comes to the lost and broken and sinful heart of mankind, he says, come to me, and you go, no. You break the created order by your sin. I break the created power, uh, the, the created influence. The purpose of our creation is to be influenced and be obedient to the word of God as he speaks it to us. And our sin drives us away from that. Anti-disciples. Lastly, would-be disciples that have secret faith. You heard this, I'm sure, as we read the latter part of verse 42 and 43 in that first half of the passage. Many of the, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. Disciples that have secret faith that is faith that is not accompanied by obedience, are would-be disciples. How terrifying is it to imagine that our hearts might be in a place where perhaps even we come to church and we sit under the word and we say, I do believe this is God's word. And then we go out the double doors and live as though we had no concept at all of what God's word actually said. True belief is accompanied by obedience. But our problem, the conflict of this passage, is that obedience is stunted where the love of the world is protected in our hearts. Now, your outline says a different word for protected, but late last night I changed the word from, I don't know, is is it allowed in your outline? Cross it out and put protected if you're following along. Because I, I thought a stronger word was a little bit more pertinent here that love for things in the world is protected in our hearts. That's why verse 42 and 43 says they couldn't confess it because they would have to give up something of this world. In this case, it was excommunication, that removal from the synagogue. Now, if you could imagine this morning that we were going to do church discipline and, and bring somebody up and say, I don't know, just bring me up, I guess. <laughs> you bring me up and say, hey, Nick's being excommunicated. He's not allowed to come to this church anymore that'd be pretty embarrassing for a minute because I'd have to look at all of you and walk out those doors in shame over whatever the thing might have been. But what am I going to do after that? If I'm, if I'm really a Christian, if I really value being in church, I'm going to just go find another one, right? There's one around the corner. There's another one over there. There's, there's so many. Lima particularly has a lot of churches, doesn't it? But think about this, that the Jews that he's talking about here that were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue had nowhere else to go, they couldn't like start at the first synagogue of Jerusalem and then end up at the you know, Presbyterian synagogue of Jerusalem or anything like that. There, there weren't denominations. You get kicked out of the synagogue, it's like getting kicked out of heaven, one commentator said. The view, it was so difficult to imagine getting kicked out of that group because In your mind, it was to be kicked out, kicked away from who God is. But Jesus says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He's he's emphasizing, look, I'm not calling you away from the one true God. I'm calling you to him. But protecting love of the things of this world in our hearts stunts our obedience. John shows us what the problem is. They were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. And why, in verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What does that even mean? What does the approval of God look like in your life? What does the approval of other people look like in your life? Is there a disconnect between your desire to obey and live the Christian life, but but also to try to hold in this other hand some way of, of looking like the rest of the world so I don't stand out like a sore thumb. It can be difficult to do that sometimes. A couple weeks ago, we went around the neighborhood and hung up door hangers, and, and we had to tell people we were Christians. There was just no other way around it. I thought, and like I do with any kind of this uh, almost like cold call type ministry type thing, being by yourself and going up to somebody and inviting them to church or sharing Christ with them or speaking anything of your faith can be one of the most daunting things ever. But do you, have you ever realized that if you weren't by yourself, everything would be different? That if somebody was going with you, and so that's why when we did door hangers, we went two by two, and just like the Mormons do, right? And suddenly we were together. Suddenly we realized there wasn't something for us to be kicked out of because we weren't by ourselves. There was no fear of that. That's why, again, what you're doing right now is so important. Prioritizing Sunday morning. It might sound, well, I don't want to just get religious about being at church every Sunday. And I'm not saying you need to be at church every single Sunday. I wasn't even here last week. And confession, I didn't go to church at all anywhere last week. But you know what? If, for, at the risk of sounding self-righteous or anything, I noticed a difference in my week after that. I missed you guys. And I knew even if I went to another church, and even if there were people that I knew there and everything, it's still not my covenant community that I've partnered with to walk in the gospel, and there's so much value in what happens in this mere moment, this little thing that we do on Sunday morning. We don't want to leave that behind. The danger is that we might be too focused on protecting our worldly loves. And so Isaiah gives a diagnosis for us in 36b through 39. First he says, who has believed what he's heard from us? This parallels perfectly with Jesus's ministry. It's just any time the gospel writers quote scripture in the life of Christ, it's perfect. But sometimes you just look at it and you go, man, that was really spot on, John. Good work. I guess that whole Holy Spirit inspiration thing works out pretty well, right? But Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us? This parallels perfectly with the teaching of Jesus. How he repeats things and builds them up through the gospel of John, and we see every time, almost every time in John's gospel, he teaches, and there's always a group of people who didn't believe. There's always a group of people who were unwilling, and perhaps even like Nicodemus, who would say, boy, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But Nicodemus didn't follow Christ. He saw him for what he truly was, and he became a would-be disciple. Have you watched The Chosen? There's a great scene with Nicodemus um, leaving a little bag of money for Jesus and his followers, and Jesus picks it up, and he kind of thinks about Nicodemus. He says something to the effect of, you were so close. And then the camera pans around, and this is all, you know, fictional, but it's, it's a good illustration for it. You should watch this show. Nicodemus is around the corner, and he's just in, he's broken down. He knows what he's supposed to do, but he can't bring himself to do it because he's protecting worldly loves in his heart who has believed what he has heard from us. Secondly, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a reference to the miraculous works of Christ. This is a fulfillment in the miraculous works of Christ. All the things that he's done. Think about chapter 5, my favorite one, feeding 5,000 people. How fun would it be as a disciple to say, hey, you guys don't have to go home, we're going to feed all of you. With what? With this kid's lunch. Amazing. Amazing. And yet they had these worldly loves in their hearts, and they they looked at Jesus and said, there's a guy we could make king, and he could knock out Herod and knock out Rome, and we could make paradise here on earth and enjoy all the sin that we want to take along with it. So Jesus withdrew from them, just like he did in the beginning of our passage today. Judgment on unbelief is the response to these things. The diagnosis is set. People haven't believed what they heard. They haven't seen with spiritual eyes what Christ has truly done. And so in verse 36 and verse 40 we see the judgment. We see that those who blind themselves are then blinded by God. Those who harden their hearts, God hardens them again. That's a tough one. I'm not going to pretend to be like, "Oh, it all makes sense and don't worry." This is hard. But this is what God does in some cases. Do we know what hearts around us might be double-hardened? No, we don't know. But we know very clearly that at the final judgment that Jesus mentions in this very passage, there will be many to whom God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And those will have no excuse to say, oh, but you didn't give me a chance. No, I gave you a chance and I also gave you what you wanted. You wanted away from me, so I gave you a way to be away from me. It's difficult. But rather than keeping the word that they hear, the rejector throws the word out. This this isn't something, again, that we can see. We can't see the hearts of people and know, oh, you're one of those double-hearted type people. And that's by design, folks. That's not just a consequence of your lack of omniscience. That's not just because God can and you can't. God has made an intentional inability for us to not be able to tell who's going to believe or who's not going to believe. So that what? So that we will obey the gospel and proclaim it to each other, regardless. And so that that person in your life that you think, they will never come to Christ, or they seem to have come to Christ, and now they've completely gone off the rails, and I know they'll never come back on the rails. That person, you have no clue how far they are away from God. We say it all the time, and and I want to, sorry, I should be more gentle on this point, because we do talk about, boy, this person's so far away from God. But the truth is, we don't really know how far they are. They could be one word away from true faith in Christ. Do you realize that? It may be your word, it may be the word of another person, but we don't know how hardened hearts are or how blind they truly are. But we do know that in our own lives that we see that if we reject the word of God and make decisions apart from it, those little decisions build up into bigger decisions and may, in fact, stunt our obedience, our growth, and our holiness. And it may be the work of the Spirit this morning to reveal that in our hearts. I know that's not a fun thing. That's not a, you know, you walk out of church with your head held high because, hey, everything's awesome we may have to realize the conviction the Spirit wants to do in our hearts so that we can walk in faithfulness. And there is a serious matter of judgment to consider. Look again with me at the end of our passage in verse 46 through 48. Jesus says, I have come to this world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This is very familiar to a few passages back in verse 35. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Now, he says, whoever believes in the light, in me, may not remain in darkness. They come out of it. They come out of disobedience. They come out of protecting worldly loves they find the true triumph of Christ. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Boy, that's a great postmodern verse to take out of context, isn't it? Wouldn't we love to just say, hey, I don't judge him. Also, Matthew, judge not lest you be judged. To use another great Paul Washer quote, he said, when people tell him, judge not lest you be judged, he says, twist not scripture, lest you be like Satan. (laughs) Which is funny and terrifying at the same time. Which pretty much sums up Paul Washer's preaching ministry. Um, And good, too, sorry. It can be scary, but it can also be funny. (sighs) Judgment is serious, though. It, It is going to come. He says, no, I'm not coming to judge right now. I didn't come into the world right now to judge it, but to save it. The day of salvation is today. But in 48, he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words does have a judge. What is the judge? The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. That is, any exposure to the truth of God that you have had in your life, if you consistently reject it to the very end, it will be as if in that day when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, all of the opportunities will be present and accounted for in the mind of God to say, I have done you no wrong, you have chosen your own way, and that is where you shall go. That is scary, but it's true. And it calls uh, the, the faithful Christian who, uh, even the faithful Christian is a weak Christian, is not a perfectly obedient Christian, to, to recognize that, that protecting these loves in this world, whether it be I don't want to get kicked out of my job or kicked out of my family or, or deal with opposition, can stunt our obedience. Christian hip-hop artist Shylin, on his first album has this great line in a song um, that is very narrative. It tells from the perspective of the struggling Christian. And in it, he has a line where he says, I have too much of the world in me to enjoy the Lord, and I have too much of the Lord in me to enjoy the world. And, man, is that line, I mean, that just came back so strongly this past week for me, because that has so often been my experience. When I really look at my heart, I realize, man, there's too much of the love of the worldly things in here for God to be pleased with my life. But then if I were to think, maybe I should just throw it all away, I'm like, no, I can't throw away Christ how could I do that? And if that's the expression of your heart, that's a really good place to be. The further we go in our walk with Christ, the further we realize our obedience has been sloppy. That's okay. Though judgment comes on the last day, or maybe right now, (laughs) forgiveness is available today. So Christ's obedience at the cross triumphs over our impulse to protect our worldly loves. Contrary to the great resignation and renegotiation and the reshuffle and the rethink, Christ has never changed course on his mission to obey the Father. And that is why he's triumphant. Don Carson says, The Father's command not only shapes and sanctions his speech, but it leads inexorably to the cross. That is to say, the Father's command to Jesus doesn't just give him the words and how to speak them, but in his obedience, he is on a one-track, no-exit highway to the cross for you. The obedience of Christ is our true hope in the matter of our own obedience. Think of Christ's obedience in the context of this prophecy from Isaiah. Jesus did what he was called to do, regardless of the immediate results. There was never a moment that he said, oh, I'm afraid what I might lose in this world. He had no fear of that whatsoever. There was nothing that he could have gained from the world in the first place. And Christian, that's true for you too. That's why Paul says, for me, to live is Christ. And to die, that's gain. I don't have anything to gain right here. All I have is Christ and him alone. And his obedience is my only hope of persevering. Isaiah's message, therefore, about the hardening of the heart and the blinding of the eyes, it's not fatalism. It is not to say, hey, there's no hope, so forget it. Forget about your own walk with Christ. Forget about other people's walk with Christ. But rather, because Christ fulfills that prophecy, disobedience on our part is no longer the final say in his divine rescue mission. The final say is his obedience. He doesn't see us as lost causes and nothing else, and therefore we can't see other people that way either. Jesus' contrast to our condition of unbelief apart from him is his consistent obedience to the Father. Consistently. Perfectly. Never once did he even question. He expresses, right? We saw this in the previous passage. He says, Now is my soul troubled, mirroring his expression in the garden. Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That didn't strike against Christ's obedience. What it did was show us the strength of his obedience. Because when he saw what was truly going to happen at the cross, not the nails, not the thorns, not the suffocation, but the wrath of God being poured out upon him, he said, if there was another way, I would take it in a heartbeat. But I know there's not. And so his obedience triumphed. I'm going to give you two theological words, very, 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 very helpful, if you'll take them today. And theologians dissect the obedience of christ in two terms one they use active obedience and passive obedience passive sounds you know almost like negative but hopefully you'll see that it is not at all the active obedience of christ is his fulfillment of the law his perfect obedience in moment by moment every day of his life all the way through to the end to the cross so think back to what Olivia read in the beginning of the service, Exodus 19, 4-6, the first words, Therefore, if you will obey my voice, you will be my treasured possession. What is the big problem with Israel throughout the whole Old Testament? They just never obeyed the voice of God. What is the real true problem in your life? Alone, we never obey the voice of God. But Christ, in his active obedience perfectly fulfill the law moment by moment. Then his passive obedience is referring to Jesus receiving the curse that would come upon any who would choose not to obey. So Jesus not only does this thing of doing what we couldn't do, but he takes what we could never take. He gives perfect grace in giving us something that we don't deserve and perfect mercy by taking the thing that we would never want his passive o- obedience is Christ receiving the curse. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verses 26 through 28. Herein he says, Moses again, as we read um, before we dismissed the children from the same book See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey my commands of the Lord, your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. I set it before you as a choice, he says to Israel. You can obey and receive a blessing. You can disobey and receive a curse. What is amazing about what Christ did at the cross is he took both. He said, I'll have both of them. Whereas none of us would say that we'd even want the curse. He says, I want the blessing and the curse. I'm going to take both of them. I'm going to absorb the curse and satisfy it and bring it to an end at the cross so that when he says, it is finished, it really is. I'm going to take the blessing and I'm going to give it to all my people. That's incredible. True triumph, then, is the glory of God's mercy at the cross the relief of escaping his wrath for us. And so our impulse to protect worldly loves is defeated, and it's replaced entirely with a greater desire, obedience for the glory of God. That's what Isaiah saw, and that's why he said in chapter 6, send me, O Lord. Lastly, we come to the completion. How do we walk by the Spirit in light of all this truth of Christ, of his obedience, his active and passive obedience? We ought to, therefore, pursue obedience to the Father for his glory until the final day. The final day, until the very end. We don't get a break. The Sabbath day is not the day where we go, okay, cool, we can take a break from everything, including trying to obey the law, trying to follow Christ, trying to walk in perfect obedience. No, we rest in the fact that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, but now we are all the more motivated Again, John 14, 15, one of the most important verses. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not if you keep my commandments, then I'll love you. Or if you keep my commandments, then you'll really love me. He's saying if love exists, if that new birth has happened, obedience will flow out of it. Not out of your efforts, not out of your workings, but out of the work of the Spirit in your heart. When I was teaching middle school, there was always a danger if I had to step out of the room, even for a moment, because I would turn around and tell the class, I'm going outside to talk to Miss So-and-so or to deal with this student, and I want you all reading chapter four, page nine, blah, 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 blah. That's what it turns into because middle schoolers are just hearing, you're leaving. <laughs> yes. What do I do now? What comes next? What can I get away with? How long will he be gone? Oh, I know what kid he's talking to. This is going to be a long time. Right? All of that's going on. How can I get out of this and 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 really how can I at the last minute, when I hear the creak of Pastor Vion's squeaky door and get right back to reading as if I was doing it the whole entire time? Friends, brothers and sisters, you do not want to be middle schoolers trying at that last moment, on the last day, to be looking like you've been doing what you were meant to be doing all along. To be walking in obedience when you think it really matters. This is the heart of the person who says, Hey, I'll wait until I know death is on my door to get right with God. That is not the heart of somebody who has truly received Christ. So my friend J.C. Ryle from the 1800s, he says, he who believes that he must give an account to the judge at his appearing will never be content with an ungodly life. Leave it to the 1800s preachers to hit us hard, huh? If you really believe that you have to give an account to the judge on the last day, when he appears, when you see him face to face. You're not going to be content with an ungodly life. Not just because the fear of, oh, no, the door's opening and he's here before I was ready, but because of the love, the affection that says, he's coming and I want to I be ready. I want to be able to say, not, you know, hey, did I do enough for Jesus? But what more could I do for him? How, how could I present and say, Lord, here's what you gave me. Here's what I did. I know it's not perfect. I know I stumbled along the way. I know I was disobedient, but I walked in the triumph of your obedience instead. So we don't hear, depart from me, I never knew you. We hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That is, obedient servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I want to leave you with three things to consider in the matter of your obedience, and thank you for your patience this morning. First of all, when we fail, obedience is not the means to being right again with God. When we fail, obedience is not the means to now being right with God yet again. We don't say, boy, I missed church. Boy, I didn't read my Bible. Boy, I said that cuss word again. Boy, I was mean to my wife or my dog or my kids or my neighbor. I'm going to go do something for God and make up for it, right? That is, unfortunately, largely the— I, I, and Oh, boy, I'm not going to accuse anybody. But that can very easily become the perspective of many in that we could say, all I need to do is figure out what good I can do to outweigh my bad. No. What can I obey so that my disobedience doesn't count anymore? Impossible. Christ has already paid the penalty for your disobedience. When we fail, it's not the means to being right again with him. So just as we trusted him at the beginning, so we trust him to the end. Instead, cling to Christ's obedience, Christian. Cling to his hope so that you see that hopelessness is the opposite of true faith, the opposite of Christianity. Even with this difficult passage from Isaiah, we are not a hopeless faith. We are not of a hopeless faith. Two, when we triumph, obedience is not the signal for spiritual superiority. One of those things that you write down in your sermon prep and you go, they know this, and then you go, wait a second, I don't know if I really know this. And the rule, I'm just saying, the rule that I hear so often is, if you need it, everybody needs it. So you're stuck with me, sorry. When we triumph, obedience is not the signal for spiritual superiority. It's very difficult for me when I come to these two steps to not walk down in despair or in pride. You know, despair, oh my goodness, that sermon, oh, that, the, this, the thing I said, or man, that was really great. There's a lot that goes on in this little period of time. If you're interested, watch and see and guess which one you think I'm walking down in or what what the temptation might be. But when we triumph, when we think, think that things are going well, obedience is not the signal for spiritual superiority to say, hey, I'm better than I ever was before, and maybe even better than that other person that I know about who really needs to work on their obedience. Rather, take the whole true triumph of Christ, his humility as we saw him coming in on a donkey, His suffering and sacrifice, the mission that clearly lay before him, and then lastly, his obedience. Defeat sin and loose yourself of those worldly loves that perhaps you're protecting to look accomplished, to to look successful, to look smart. Thirdly and lastly, when we speak, obedience is not unimportant to our testimony. It was Jesus' last cry to the crowds, his own testimony. What I'm bringing to you is not mine, but the Father's. So we have a mirrored um, situation in our own testimony as well. What I bring you is not a religion I made up of my own. It is simply me saying, here's what I know that he has done for me. Obedience, though, is not unimportant to our testimony because our lives will reflect whether we really believe what we say or not. That is essential. Our testimony can either be bolstered by our obedience or called into question by it. We're going to sing, It Was Finished Upon That Cross. And as we do, I pray that you would remember the triumph of Christ this morning and that you would walk in anticipation that his obedience that counts for you can also create obedience in your own life so that you can endure suffering, so that you can walk humbly. And remain in steadfast obedience, even as we trip and fall and stumble along the way. We have confidence because of what Christ has done, because He finished everything at the cross. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you this morning for your faithfulness, for the faithfulness of your Son on our behalf, His active obedience, living perfect obedience to Christ and every to, to the Father in every moment, and His passive obedience, His willingness to accept even the curse, even the wrath of God for our sin. Lord, we thank you. We give you praise. And we pray that you would help us to walk in the confidence of your finished work so that we might glorify you alone. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.